Mark chapter 3, I'll start in verse 22 and read down to verse 30. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one enters a strong man's house and plunders his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Join me as we pray. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us. Uh, I pray that you would especially help me right now that what I say would be an accurate representation of what you have said in your word. I pray that you would bring peace and calmness to souls that are tortured. I pray that you would bring an awakening and a belief for those that have yet come to Christ by faith. I pray that you administer to our hearts even as the word is read today. Help us now in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> John Newton was a great blasphemer, blasphemer. In fact, that's what he called himself, blasphemer. 1725, he was born into a home that had a devoutly Christian mother and an irreligious sea captain father. An irreligious, foul-mouthed sea captain father. Before he was seven years old, his devout mother died of some mysterious disease. He was left with his foul-mouthed, irreligious father. By the time he was 11 years old, he was at sea with his dad. There at sea, he learned all of the terrible ways that you can imagine made the 18th century sailors infamous. By his own admission, he said that there was not a crime or a sin that he did not commit. Didn't take long where he saw that the money could be made, not just in being a captain of a ship, money could be made if you were sailing on a slave ship. If you would be daring enough to run the middle passage with human cargo. So he became what he later would call the great African blasphemer. 
treating people like animals in ways that would not even be fit to talk about here in church. To his everlasting shame, until one evening when he was 23 years old, he was on his way back from some terrible tour and off the coast of Ireland in his greyhound, a storm, a squall had come up. And in the midst of that storm, he was panicking and it felt as if that ship was about to go down as many did in that day and time. And in that instant, he says, I remembered. I remembered what my mother taught me in the catechism and in the Bible. And in his panic, he cried out to God and he said, God, have mercy on me. And in the name of Jesus, save me. And God saved him. God not only saved him that evening, God quieted the storm and he landed safely in Ireland. Years later, when he was writing the only hymns with his partner, Cooper, William Cooper, years later he would write the song that we know as the world's most famous hymn. Has that beautiful first line that says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you know? Do you know the grace of God? It's the theme of this passage. Let's get the context. Let's make sure we stay within the context. Let's go here to the passage, doing expositional preaching means that you find yourself in the Bible and you need to know what's the context, what, what is the author telling us. So if you take the context, the verse after this passage, down to verse 31, we find out that Jesus' mother and his brothers are there. They've traveled over to Capernaum. They've come from Nazareth. We want to know why are they there? Well, the verse before this passage in verse 21 tells us that they are there because they think he has lost his mind. And here in this passage, Jesus pushes the, the scribes aside and his family aside and he opens up for us the power of God in forgiveness and the fury of God in rejection. Very seldom. Now, if you've read the Bible, very seldom in the Bible do you have the juxtaposition of God's grace on one hand and eternal judgment on the other. So what I want to do is take this passage and let's just look at it together. Let's look at it through the lens of grace. Why? Because all the power of God's grace is found in Jesus. All the power of God's grace is found in Jesus. Let's go and use that theme of grace through it. Let's go and see what we can find in verse 22. There's my first point, number one. I want you to see that the confusion of grace is growing. The confusion of grace is growing. Not only in the Bible, <clears throat> the confusion surrounding grace is growing in our day and time. Before we get to that, let's find out what's going on here. Join me there, verse 22. We find out that in verse 22, the scribes, 
The scribes came down from Jerusalem, the text says. The scribes are the lawyers. They are the ones that know the law. They are the officials of the religion. They have certain sway. The way that it is written in verse 22, they came down from Jerusalem, not because Capernaum was south of Jerusalem, but because Jerusalem is higher. And if you travel anywhere in that area, you came down from Jerusalem. Not only that, when you came down from Jerusalem, you came with authority. Here's a, a, an official delegation coming because Jesus' reputation has been expanding. His miracles have people astounded. Demons are being cast out, and that reputation has made it all the way up to Jerusalem. And so the high important people have come down with an official statement. Look at the statement, verse 22. <clears throat> the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, this is what they said. Here's their statement. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So the first thing you got to do is find out what is Beelzebul. He, is, he is, uh, has the power of Beelzebul. So I looked up Beelzebul. You track it down through all kind of commentaries, dictionaries, scholars, and there really is no real consistency. If you have a study Bible, maybe down in the in their apparatus, you have some sort of definition of Beelzebub. Sometimes it's, it's translated as, as Lord of the manor or Lord of a house. Most of the time, it is understood to be Lord of the flies. Press further, what does it mean? Lord, Lord of the kind of flies that are around carrion. Possum gets hit in the road. It lays there a day or so in the sun and the flies start to swarm around a dead body. Take that gross scene, bring it over here. This is what the scribes are saying. This is what you're the Lord of. What you're doing is demonic. You're the Lord of, of rotten things, confusion. I mean, here's Jesus, Jesus the supreme good, Jesus who is healing, Jesus who is casting out demons, Jesus who is teaching and now being called rotten. To look at something that is supremely good and call it supremely evil. That's the confusion there. It's the confusion here. It's the confusion in 2023. We've, we've come up into a society that has now taken what we view as supremely good and called it supremely evil. For instance, we would hearken our faith back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and there we find God creating all things, including you and I, creating us male and female, and Him saying that is good and we cherish that as a biblical truth that has been borne out in all of nature. And yet, if you declare that there are only two sexes, male and female, you will be called Beelzebub, rotten. What is supremely good has been called supremely evil. Next week is, is Mother's Day. What a great thing to do is set aside a weekend to celebrate the goodness of 
mothers. But look, even motherhood is taking a beating in the world we live in. Instead of saying there is supreme value in the great love of a mother and how she anchors a home down, or, or, the, or masculinity, take the goodness of a man that loves his family or provides leadership and defense or, or just as a man. And here we stand and say it's wrong for a man to dress up like a woman and go to a library and read to children. We, we say that it's wrong, and us saying that is seen as rottenness. Calling the gospel oppression, saying that if you don't accept there are churches in Charlotte, for instance, that would consider themselves welcoming and affirming. So let me go on record and say, I would consider our church welcoming and affirming. We welcome anyone who wants to come to church. Please come here. What we affirm is the dignity you've been created in God with the image of God. We affirm that. Did you have great dignity and we respect you. We also affirm that we are all sinners in need of the grace of God found in Jesus. That there's no sin greater than the other. We all run to the cross of Jesus where he died for our sins. And the affirmation is, if you put your faith in Christ, he'll save you and change you. It's a gospel that's lifted up. There's a confusion. What Jesus is doing in the text is a confusion. Even now, there's a confusion, understand, confusion in the understanding of grace. What does it mean to show grace? Grace is telling the truth, pointing to Jesus, loving people. That's the confusion of grace. Let's talk about the logic. Let me go to another thing you'll notice here. The logic of grace is assuring. There is some assurance to what Jesus says in verse 23 and 24 and 25 and 26. There's a logic to it. Notice what the text says in verse 23. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables. That's the first time in the book of Mark you find the word parables. What he is getting ready to say is not a parable in the classic sense. It is really more like a proverbial saying. And he'll say it three different ways. Let's go through verse 24, 23, 24, 25, 26. <clears throat> and he called them to him and he said to them in parables. Okay, here's the statement. How... Can Satan cast out Satan? You're calling me the prince of darkness, bills above, and I, that's how I'm doing it? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus says. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Okay, if you don't get that, let's talk about something local. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So you get the point. This is the point that we know. When Connie and I were living in Alabama, we moved to Mobile, and there in Alabama, college sports is really big, especially football. Got Alabama and Auburn, and we were given uh, equal shirts and hats from both Alabama and Auburn and said, you need to pick one. 
And uh, one person gave me a hat that had it split down the middle, Alabama and Auburn. I said, I would prefer to, to remain neutral in this dispute. And they said, you cannot. <laughs> you have to have one or the other. You cannot be a house divided. All of us know this principle. I mean, we understand this principle. It's true at home. You can't live at a home where mom and dad are at odds with one another. Can't have a kingdom. You know, you, know, you wonder how long the United States will last as it is right now with so much division because of this principle. Jesus is saying, what you're talking about is illogical. Can't be on a team. Playing football, you can't be on a team where the team is divided. You can't be at a church. There's not some cohesion where you have a creed, the Apostles' Creed that holds us and the Bible that holds us, our statement of faith that's, that says, yes, this is what we believe. There's a certain logic to it. And really what Jesus is doing is showing them the absurdity of what you're saying. What you're saying is absurd. Here's Jesus exposing the absurdity of sin. Here's his argument. Now, in the context, he's done, he's cast out demons and provided healing up to this point in chapter 3. And this is what he says to them. I have just cast out Demons. Satan. Now, if Satan is doing that, then Satan is working against himself, which is absurd. We live in a world where what is absurd is being pressed on us as the truth. When you're steeped in sin, when you're lost in sin, when you're covered in sin, when your eyes are covered in sin, you, you believe the absurd. When you're blinded by sin, you can scroll on your iPad and come to CNN News and look at the news there. You can see a picture of a man in a bathing suit and say, yes, that's a woman. For those of you that like MMA and fighting, I don't, I don't watch that. It's too gruesome for me. Boxing was bad enough, but MMA seems like gladiator. I don't know. It looks too gruesome. But you can watch MMA, and if you see a man that presents himself as a woman and watch as he beats another woman and say that's okay, your eyes have been covered. See what sin does? Sin makes you believe absurd things. They're saying to Jesus, hey, you're, you're casting out Satan by Satan. And Jesus says, hey, you need to wake up. That doesn't make any sense. He's going to teach us the grace of God. You see, the grace of God. The grace is a, of God is a good, a good God who's called out to sinful people and provided a way to know him through Jesus Christ. You read verse 22, you find the confusion, <clears throat> the confusion of grace 
It's growing. You read verse 23 and 24, 25, 26 is the parable, and Jesus teaches us there that the logic of the logic of grace is assuring. While sin is absurd, grace is assuring. It assures us that even though we are sinners, we are saved by his grace through faith in Jesus. So if we're talking about grace, let's go to the strength of grace. I want you to say in verse 27. Business starts to pick up now in verse 27. <clears throat> I want you to see that the strength of grace is uplifting. It's uplifting. Verse 27, Jesus tells another parable. This time it actually is a parable. It's not a proverbial saying. He's going to be in the parable. Jesus is, is in this one. Let me just read it and kind of give some comment as we go. Verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house. The strong man he's talking about is Satan, and the one entering is Jesus. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. The goods of the strong man are those people that have been duped by sin and are held captive by Satan. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he, Jesus, first binds the strong man, Satan, and then indeed, Satan is bound, he can plunder his house. We live in a world where Satan has, Satan has taken people captive to his will. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that that Satan has taken people captive. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 that Satan has covered the eyes of people so they can't see. Jesus has come in in this passage, and one of the first things he sees, this, one of the first things he does that seems so weird to us is he comes in not only healing, but casting out demons. You see, Jesus' presence forcing out demons is an open and tangible display of his assault on the lordship of Satan in this world. And verse 27 gives us this picture of the, the strong man Satan being bound up. And the way that he is bound up will be at the cross of Jesus. Verse 27 says, that get, the, get the parable now. <clears throat> no one can enter the strong man's house, that's Satan's house, and plunder his goods. Satan's goods are people he has captive. People that are in sin. And you say, well, are they, if they're held captive by Satan, how is it their fault? You wouldn't blame someone that's kidnapped held captive in their own sin. What happens is that oftentimes in our own sin, we develop something called the Stockholm Syndrome. The Stockholm Syndrome is, is when you develop a kinship with the one that's holding you captive, that it actually is your enemy, but because you're so close, that one who is your enemy, you develop some sort of connection and even affection for the one who's holding you captive. And oftentimes people so steeped in sin will 
develop an affection for that sin and the one holding them, Satan. And as Satan gives you food and drink and you, you take that drink and even though you know that it's poison, you've developed such an affection for this condition and the Stockholm Syndrome, you stay there and drink it. And this parable says, Jesus sees you in that condition. There's been nobody that can beat the strong man. Nobody dares to go near his house. Jesus on a mission says, I'll go to that house. Here's the original recon. Jesus goes into that house, does what nobody else can do, binds the strong man, brings you to your senses. You see that, yeah, that's poison. Spit that out. And faith is you looking to Jesus as your, as your rescuer. Jesus going through the cross to save you. Jesus comes and he rescues. How does he do it? By the power of the Spirit, you see. When you read Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3, you hear him talk about the Holy Spirit. When he's baptized, the Holy Spirit. Everything he does is by the Holy Spirit. How does, he, how does he save you out of that? How do you believe? Is it something you do? No, the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see. The Spirit moves and you see the poison for what it is and you spit it out and you turn to Jesus, the bread of life, and you believe. See the power there. There's great assurance there. But, but not just that. Keep, keep reading now. We've talked about the power. Let's go to verse 28 and and look at the scope. The scope of grace is astounding. I mean, it is. When you read that, sometimes you read too fast and we get, get through it too quickly. You, when you read that, it ought to make you stop. Let me see what he says, verse 28. <clears throat> Truly I say to you, if you're reading it in Greek, amen. If you're a Baptist preacher, you want your amens on the end of what you say. Not the front end. If you're Jesus, you put them on the front end. When you say something, somebody says, amen, I agree with that. Yes, sir, that's the truth. Here, Jesus starts it off saying, what I'm getting ready to tell you is the absolute truth. You'll see it a lot of times in the Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you. This is the first time you see it in the book of Mark. Jesus says, amen, truly. I'm going to say something that is authoritative and far-reaching. What does he say? Truly, I say to you, all sins, circle that, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Whatever they have done, whatever, whatever debauched things they can come up with to do, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies, blasphemy is speaking something terribly offensive about God or to God. Whatever blasphemies they have said to God, whatever they've uttered, think of what Jesus is doing now. All sins will be forgiven. All the terrible things you've said, forgiving. So I started, I started thinking, well, what about this? This is, this is our condition. When I hear on all sins are forgiven, what about? We go into whataboutism. So let me just save you some of the whataboutism. So I started going, okay, what about, yeah, I've read the Bible a time or two. What about the terrible king Manasseh? He was a terrible king in 2 
Kings and Second Chronicles. I mean, he was so bad, he sacrificed his own children to Molech, burn them up in the fire. Who could forgive that? You go read that story, Manasseh is saved, puts his faith in God. What about, what about David in the Old Testament? The terrible, outlandish adultery and murder and deception forgiven by God. What about the Apostle Paul? who wrote so much of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was probably a murderer of Christians. He certainly was a persecutor of the church. He hated the God of the New Testament. And yet God saved him. What about Peter? Peter and his famous denials, his outright arrogance and complete betrayal, forgiveness. What about John Newton? The terrible sins he committed. Amazing grace. List it, whatever it is, list it. List them. List them. List them over here. List them. 28, Jesus says, all. Truly I say to you, all. Look right here, friend. Here's the power and the scope and the eternality, the eternally valid promise of the gospel. When I say gospel, I mean the substitutionary atonement of Jesus in your place gospel god is holy we are sinners in a terrible spot condemned to hell god and his goodness this is what the bible says god and his goodness has given us jesus christ who lived perfectly died on the cross taking the wrath of god away the judgment for your sin is on jesus he is not judging you if you're going through a hard time that is discipline any good father disciplines his child the judgment of God has fallen on Jesus. He took that away. And now when you put your faith in Christ, what happens is by the Spirit, you are adopted as a son or daughter of God. The, the scope of it is astounding. But it doesn't end there, does it? There's a boundary. I hate to end like this, but we have to end like the, like the Bible does. Number five, I want you to see the boundary of grace is terrifying. Verse 29, this haunting verse is a contrast to verse 28. So verse 28 has this beautiful, all sins, regardless of what they've said, all sins are, will be forgiven. Verse 29, but, see the contrast, but, all sins are forgiven, verse 28, but there is one of holding back, there's a boundary. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then there, there's the reason, verse 30. Make sure you get verse 30. For they were saying, he, Jesus, has an unclean spirit. So what you have here is what, what has been known as the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. Neither one of those phrases are found in the Bible. It's better to use the eternal sin, the phrase that Jesus has used here. That sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why is that such a sin? Why is the unforgiveness, Jesus says in Matthew, it's recorded in Matthew 12, not in this life or in the one to come. Why, the, why blasphemy, speaking ugly, nasty, terrible of the Holy Spirit. Well, because only 
Only the Holy Spirit. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit that you are able to have saving faith. How did you come to faith in Jesus? It was the work of the Holy Spirit in you. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit means that the Holy Spirit who is seeking to lead you to Christ, to blaspheme that is unforgivable. To say you don't want that and it makes faith impossible without the Holy Spirit. You can't have faith. Be careful how you talk about the unforgivable sin. People have wondered, is this suicide? Kill yourself, is that the unforgivable sin? It is not. Is murder, is divorce, is abortion the unforgivable sin? No. I refer you to verse 28. Jesus says, all sins are forgiven. There is one. By the way, if you're worried, if you have committed the unforgivable sin, if you are worried about that, you have not committed it. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not taking the Lord's name in vain. You'd be cussing like a sailor. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a sin of knowledge. This is not just rejection of Christ. All of us before we were saved have rejected Christ. This is not just a rejection of Christ. This is someone who has a very clear knowledge of who Christ is and of how the Holy Spirit works in the Christian faith. And then having that knowledge with a willful rejection of the facts about Christ, the facts that are known to be true, and then attributing those things, attributing the, the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. That's what verse 30 says. Mark tells us the reason Jesus said this is because they kept saying what he was doing was Satan's work. This is what John will call later, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. He will call this the sin unto death. This is Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. This is the apostasy falling away. This is the sin that Christians cannot commit. Those who've committed this sin don't care. They never turn back. They're not worried about committing this sin because they don't care. And the separation, verse 29 is astounding because it's one of those clear passages in the Bible that talks about the eternal separation. The separation in verse 29 is horrifying. Never has forgiveness. Do you see the wording in verse 29? Never has forgiveness. The guilt of eternal sin remains forever and ever and ever. That gives us one of the clearest pictures in the Bible. There is an unforgivable sin. But don't forget now. Don't forget what the Apostle Paul said to all the believers in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul said, I'm, I'm sure of this. I, I'm, I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see the power of God, the, the power of God 
And the power of God's grace is found in Jesus. Here sit two type of people. In this room, two type of people. One, you're a Christian and this resonates with you. It strengthens your heart and you're thinking of someone you want to pray for. Others of you, second kind of person, today you've been awakened. You've been awakened to your need for Christ. Come and put your faith in Jesus and receive the joy and forgiveness found in verse 28 and run away from the terror found in verse 29. Come and put your faith in the crucified, resurrected Jesus. Join me as we pray together. With your heads bowed this morning as we go to a time of commitment and prayer, we're going to sing another song, one last worship song. It's a good time for you to come and pray for someone that you have on your heart. The way we do that here, part of our tradition, is during the singing, it's a good time to talk to a pastor about giving your life to Jesus or just to come and pray, or you want a pastor to pray with you, we invite you to come forward, and you can do that right down here in the front. If you're not comfortable with that, after the, after the service, we'll all be in the lobby, pastors will be around, and we want to talk to you about what it means to have this wonderful forgiveness found in Jesus. Father, we thank you for the promise found here, for the call of the Spirit. We thank you that you have forgiven all of our sins in Christ. We pray for those that we know are without Christ. Teach us to say good and right and gracious things pointing to the Lord Jesus. Be honored as we sing this song to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?